we are going to do the pastoral prayer following the sermon. So at this time, I would invite you to go ahead and turn in your copies of God's Word back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, as I'm sure you realize just now in our assurance of pardon, we looked um, at a portion of the, of the end of 1 first, uh, Peter 1 in connection with a portion of the beginning. And I chose this on purpose because I really want us to be saturated in this first chapter of Peter as we continue to strive to uh, rightly define ourselves as sojourners and exiles, as those who are on this, this pilgrimage um, that sal- as how salvation is described here in 1 Peter. This morning, I want us to focus on verse 17 uh, and the beginning of verse 18. Um, to set us up, I'm going to begin reading once again in 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning that you have not left us in the darkness of our own understanding, that you have not left us as as a people who did not know you and who were not uh, accepted by you. We praise you this morning that because of the life of Christ that has entered us through the Holy Spirit, we are no longer slaves to the desires of the flesh and obedient to, to earthly realities. And we praise you, Lord, that in your great mercy, you have chosen to redeem us from a futile way of life. And so speak to us. Help us to hear your voice this morning. There is a clamoring within our ears, Lord, where the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly cry out to us and constantly invite us to participate in what they are doing in order to experience the affirmation that they offer. But Lord, help us to hear that it is a lie. And what you have given us is the truth. And so as your people, continuing to grow more and more misunderstood and maligned by our current society, Grant us the grace of your presence that we might give ourselves to you in a fresh way. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's say you went to 
the store. We won't name the store, because if I name a store, some of you will be like, oh yeah, I like that store. Or others will go, no, I don't like that store. Well, let's just say a just generic store. And as you walked in, you saw that there was a table with a big banner on it that said, enter to win our grand prize. All right, we can all picture that. We're, an, we're Americans. You've probably seen something like this. Enter your information, right? They want your information, so they're going to email you to death. But enter your information for a chance to win our grand prize. And you're sitting there, and you see the invitation, and you're like, okay, that sounds great. I'll just do it. Now, is that how we do it? Is that how you and I actually engage with a banner like that? Let me... Let me put it to a, di a different way. Let's say you walk up and there's this table and there's this banner. And it says, hey, enter your information for free and, and uh, for the chance to win our grand prize of a gumball. What would you do in that situation? It would be as if you never read the sign, right? You would just keep on going. I'm not going to risk getting spammed in my email the rest of my life for a gumball, right? I can go in and put a quarter in the machine and get my own gumball. Well, not right now because of coronavirus, but you know what I mean. But what if the table said this? Enter your information for a free opportunity to win our grand prize of eight Cadillacs. Now, are you a little bit more motivated? Yeah. Is that a prize that has value, that has worth? It's okay to risk 20 seconds of your life to fill out the information and to risk the whatever you have to do in terms of deleting the spam the rest of your life? Is it possible? The point is, in terms of the cost-benefit analysis, you are way more likely to engage in that opportunity on the basis of what is being offered. When we see Jesus Christ in Matthew 13 say, the kingdom is like this field where someone happens upon a field. And, and, and the point here is the field looks ordinary. It looks normal. There's nothing special about it. And yet he finds something special because there is this treasure. And so what does he do? Well, he secures the situation so it continues to look normal and then he goes and he gives everything he has to get that field. Why? Because the field is of much greater value and worth than a normal field. It has this treasure. And so he rightly in doing a cost-benefit analysis, realizes that if I were to possess this field and to possess the treasure that is in this field, it is way better than what I currently have in my, in my current situation. Do you see how that works? 
The treasure completely the, um, changes the situation. And the value of the treasure matches uh, the worth of what is being offered. If we were to read the kingdom of God is like a field and it had a gumball. So a guy went and sold everything he had to get that field. We'd be like, what? That, that's, that doesn't seem very wise. You see how that works? There is a value. There is a worth. And the connection that you have to it can either motivate you in one direction or another. You see how that works? The reason that I'm putting it to you this way is that the situation that you and I face and that every Christian faces on a daily basis, going back to forever, even to Adam and Eve in the garden, is a, a, choice, is, is a situation in which we are either motivated to give something to get something of less worth or greater worth. What did Adam and Eve choose in the garden? They chose to give up themselves for something that was of less worth than what God was offering. See how that works? Let me put it to you a different way. The sin that you and I still have residing in our hearts that still exists in the world is constantly tempting us with a lie. And the lie is this. I can give you so much if you'll just give yourself to me. I can give you so much. Right? If you take the apple, you can become like God. It's a false promise. It's a promise in which the thing making the offer can't actually provide what it's offering. Give yourself to me, and you can experience acceptance. Give yourself to me, and you can experience power and influence in your life. Give yourself to me, and I will make sure that you enjoy the pleasures of the flesh. Give yourself to me, and I can make it so that you never have another need in your life. Give yourself to me. Give yourself to me. Give yourself to me. Give yourself to me. But all those things can give you is death. The psalmist puts it this way. Idols have eyes, but they don't see. Why? Because they're dead. Idols have mouths, but they don't speak. Why? Because they're dead. Idols have hands, but they can't do anything with those hands. Why? Because they're dead. And we can go through it and through it and through it. 
But the point that the psalmist has for us there is not simply that idols are dead, but when he says, those who make them become like them, so also do all who trust in them. You give yourself to an idol, you're giving yourself to death. See how that works. The people that Peter is writing to live in the eastern, uh, northeastern, uh, the northeastern and eastern parts of Asia Minor. And they are surrounded by this mixture of Roman culture and they are surrounded by this mixture of all these little tribal cultures that resided in those areas. In fact, at the time in which Peter is writing, that portion of Asia Minor is not all that Roman yet. It is within the Roman Empire, but culturally speaking, it is as dominated by the local traditions as it was by the Roman culture. And what was happening at the time in which Peter wrote is that you had this, the Roman culture was spreading across Asia Minor, and as it was coming into these areas, you had Roman culture that was being added to these other pagan tribal cultures, and it was becoming this mixture. And the people of God find themselves living within that system. So that the idols of the tribal pagan or the, the pagan tribal peoples, those idols are at play. And as the Roman culture is coming across, the Roman idols are now at play. And the way that you experience life in this situation was that the more you gave yourself to the greater number of gods, the better your life went. You want to be accepted within the society? Well, then make sure that everyone knows that you like their God in addition to your God. Make sure you like this God and 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 this God. The, the worst thing you could do was to say, I only worship one God, and he's the true God. Exclusivity was the greatest sin. And the temptation that God's people have within the situation in which they are living is to choose acceptance over an exclusive devotion to God. The temptation that they have is to make sure that they can continue to get work because when they go and they go and they're part of the trade guild in which, you know, that whatever trade they have, they make sure that they make an offering to this God and to this God and to this God. If you go to Birmingham, and you start to drive through uh, the, just north of downtown, you will see the Vulcan. The Vulcan was a god that tradespeople would make sacrifices to as a way of securing a benefit for their trade. See how that works? This constant pressure. Don't be exclusive. 
you absolutely have to be inclusive. Give a little something to everybody to hedge your bets. Don't give everything you have to one. And so the Lord, in knowing the, the, the temptation, in knowing the situation, and because he is a father who cares for his children, he doesn't just say, I don't care about the pressure. Do what's right. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, it doesn't matter what's going on. You just do the right thing. No, what he does throughout redemptive history is he sets himself before his people over and over and over and over and over. And he shows himself to be more powerful than the competing gods that his people are dealing with, whether they are in Egypt or whether they are about to go into the promised land or whether they find themselves living in exile in Babylon or Assyria. Wherever they find, they find themselves, and even when they come back to the land after exile, what happens? Do they come back and everything is restored and they, they keep going? No. They come back and they're in the physical land, but they are surrounded by foreign enemies. And they never, even up to the point of Jesus Christ, they never again had control, and power in their own land. They always lived as foreigners, even when they were back in their own land. And where, wherever God's people found, find themselves, you, you go into the Old Testament and you see over and over and over, here's who I am, and here is what I have done. Give yourself to me, because this is what I am giving to you. And he sets himself in contrast to the competing gods. He sets himself in contrast to the, to the competing sins. And he says, here I am, here I am, here I am. And he says, I am better. Give yourself to me. Do you see what's happening there? Why give yourself to a gumball when you can give yourself not to eight Cadillacs, but something eternal. The gods of the nations are gold and silver, the psalmist says. Peter says, you have been redeemed by something that is greater than gold and silver. And what is it? The blood of the eternal Jesus Christ. Every temptation that you and I face in this world as a people who have been born again to a living hope, as a people who have been purchased by God and brought out of the futility of the culture in which we naturally reside, as those uh, who, who, who have this calling of now that you're my children, be holy because I am holy. Uh, within this situation, what he sets before us is the eternal worth of Jesus Christ in comparison to the futility of what culture can provide. 
And look, it doesn't matter which culture. This same text is being preached in Africa. This same text is being preached in Europe. This same text is being preached in the Orient. This same text is, is being preached in South America. This same text is being preached globally around the entire globe. And, and, and this includes here in the United States. That when you and I come to faith in Jesus Christ because he takes us and he redeems us with this eternal value of Christ. He is removing us from the futility of the cultures in which we reside. Now, what's interesting here, and hopefully, Lord willing, we'll cover this in the background study, is there's, there have been different views about 1 Peter. And who is Peter writing to? Is he writing to uh, Jewish believers who, who um, have left uh, uh, Israel and are living uh, in Asia Minor? Or is he writing predominantly to Gentile believers? And what's beautiful about the way 1 Peter is written is there's no clear answer, and I think that's part of its genius. Because the point is, whether you are someone who was raised as a Jew or whether you're someone who was raised as a Gentile, when you come to Jesus Christ, you all become part of the people of Abraham in the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. And the reality is that every single culture has a history and an existence of futility because of sin. That's the history that the scripture unfolds when Adam and Eve fall in the garden. It introduces sin into the world. It introduces sin into society. And every society since the garden has been fallen, has been corrupt, has been broken. And has made empty promises. Isn't this what the entire book of Ecclesiastes is about? The existence under the sun apart from God is futile. See, we don't have to try to figure out, well, is he talking about Gentiles or is he talking about Jews? He is talking about all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. The Gentiles certainly have a history of idolatry. The, the Gentiles definitely have a history of giving themselves to false gods. The Gentiles certainly have this history, right, over and over and over again. But what was the history of Israel? The history of Israel was this. I'm going to redeem you out of Egypt, and I'm going to redeem you out from under their false gods. And I'm going to establish you as my people, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, when you go into the promised land, guess what? You're going to be surrounded by a new group of people who have a new set of gods. And when you get there, don't give in to those gods. But what happened? They did. Over and over and over and over 
and over for millennia. And God patiently watched his people give themselves. And not by way of saying, forget you, Yahweh, we like Molech. No. What they said is, well, we're going to keep Yahweh, and we'll add Molech, and we'll add this God, and we'll add that God. They valued peace, and so they entered into treaties with people that God said, don't do that. I will protect you. You don't need that treaty for your peace. I am your peace. And they said, well, we're going to hedge our bet. And if we get our peace from you, awesome. If we get it from being in, uh, in cahoots with Egypt, well, that's cool too. You see how that worked? And so whether they were Jewish believers who, who their forefathers were, were part of the, of, of the Jewish uh, history and people, guess what? The history of the Jewish people, what we are shown in the Old Testament time and time and time again is that the way that they were going about things was futile. And so what do we have presented to us here? That when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you become part of that people of Abraham. And you are, you are redeemed from the futility of a life, whether Jew or Gentile. You are redeemed from the futility of the culture in which you reside. And then God says, remember that the price that I paid for the redemption was the blood of my precious son was the blood of my eternal son was the blood of my perfect son was the blood of the one who was completely and totally devoted to me who never once gave any ounce of himself to another. That's the price that I have paid in order to free you from the futility of the culture in which you reside so that you can be holy as I am holy. And do you, do you realize that this calling to be holy as God is holy, it is a calling not simply about morality. It is a calling of mission. To be holy as God is holy is to reveal God's holiness and it is to reveal the God of that holiness and so in Jesus Christ we are told that he is the eternal one who before the foundations God had purposed to one day reveal to the nations and when you and I when we are bought by the blood of that eternal Christ. And when we are redeemed, when we are taken out, and we are made a part of the people of God, and we are called to be holy as he is holy, what you and I are doing is to participate in God's continual 
unfolding or revealing of Jesus Christ until that day comes when he will return in his fullness and be revealed in the totality of his glory. Being holy is about morality, but it is also about mission. Being redeemed and self-identifying and self-defining as being redeemed from a feudal culture and to, in order to be part of a victorious purpose in Jesus Christ. These are ways that the Lord is blessing us as his people, even though for a time, as Peter says, it is costly, it is difficult, and we have to risk not being accepted but do so on the basis of the full eternal acceptance that we have in Jesus Christ. This week, as you will continue to be tempted because we are living in a situation that is unprecedented, not only with regards to the coronavirus, but even with regards to social unrest and the way the culture of violence is working itself out on both sides, on all sides, what we are seeing is the futility of life under the sun. And so don't give in to becoming a part of it. But give yourself to Christ so that you can stand as one who can reveal the hope that this culture of death needs. So that you can reveal that there is true life and that true life will not be obtained through violence. It will be obtained by faith. We have to be light we have to be salt. We have to stand on the side of Jesus Christ and reveal him to people who are languishing. And guess what? Just as I said weeks ago from C.S. Lewis's paper on learning in wartime, the coronavirus and now the social unrest, has not revealed anything new. It's revealing what is always there. And so allow yourself to be broken by it so that you can see that in the falling, in the crumbling of the things around us, what is not under threat is the life of our crucified and risen Savior. What is not under threat is his salvation rule and reign. Stand with him and give hope as those who need hope. And do so by reminding yourself every day this week of the incomparable worth of the eternal 
Christ that you have already won, not by you putting your name into a raffle. but by God picking yours before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a comfort it is To know that you understand our trials, our tribulations, our temptations. And that not only have you provided all things needed in Jesus Christ, but you are the one who never slumbers or sleeps in order to constantly keep us as those who are in the palm of Christ's hands where he is described as being in the palm of yours. Lord, we could not be safer. We could not be more secure. And yet we are grieved by the suffering and death that we are seeing unfold around us in unprecedented ways. And it is so difficult, Lord, to really open ourselves up and to be vulnerable to what is going on. We would rather try to fix it. We would rather simplify it. We would would rather make it something that is easy and not complex. We would would rather uh, simply try to offer worldly answers. in worldly plans. Lord, help us to embrace the safety of our union with Jesus Christ individually and corporately so that we don't have to give in to those temptations, but instead that we can understand what is happening through the crucif- the suffering crucif- and crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, there is a global pandemic that continues to unfold. And so we ask for your mercy for those who are sick. We ask for your mercy. And we ask you to restrain the virus that limits would be put into place and that we could, uh, Lord, begin to see a change in the numbers. We pray that you would bless the scientists that are doing research to be able to find uh, some kind of vaccine. But Lord, help us to wait actively and not to be afraid and, and not to be coarse and careless, but to trust in you. We pray for those, and we are grieved for those, Father, that have been impacted financially by these things. 
that find themselves uh, suffering because of the uncertainties of employment or the uncertainties of, of being able to participate in the, in the economy. We pray, Lord, and, and we thank you for the current report that th things seem to be improving on those fronts. But, Lord, we do pray that you would comfort those who are, find themselves in the fear, in the grips of the fear of this current situation and help them to see that you have made promises to your people to provide everything that is necessary. And, Father, help us as a church to realize our privilege of participating in your provisions that your promises to provide are are not these naked promises that don't have clothes and don't have flesh as if you're just going to cause coins to drop out of the sky but that you provide through your people and so help us lord to respond to the concerns that we see by a generosity of making sure those within our body have what they need and, Lord, to help participate in taking care of those outside of these walls. We pray for the cities that find themselves and for the churches that find themselves, Lord, ripped apart by the differences of opinions right now about when uh, to get going and when to reopen. Father, we pray that you would protect your churches and that you uh, would cause them to remember the unity, not that they have to achieve, but the unity that you have already achieved in Jesus Christ. Help them not to reject that unity. Help them not to turn down that unity, but help them to embrace that unity as they patiently love one another and try to work together in a situation in which there is no clear knowledge or understanding of what is happening or what should be done. Bless the elders and deacons as we continue to try to shepherd your people here through this. And bless your missionaries, Lord, who find themselves separated from their fields who find themselves unable to either get back on the field or unable to be with their people that they have been ministering to. For those people, Lord, we pray that you would make your presence known to them within their small gatherings as they wait for the missionaries to, to return. Help them not to, wait patient, uh, not to wait passively, but to actively engage in reminding themselves of your great promises and of your great work of salvation in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the cities around our country right now that are being torn to shreds by the culture of death. We praise you and ask for your protection, for the police officers who find themselves stationed uh, in the middle, and we pray, Lord, that they would not give in to fear and use unnecessary force within the process of what is going on. But protect them, Lord, and keep them safe and help them to go home. We pray for the, the families of those who have lost loved ones this week because they were um, trying to help police during these riots 
and didn't come home. Father, surround them with people in their lives that can manifest your mercy and your grace and can minister to them. But Father, we pray not only for limits and safety for the police and for the government, we we pray for safety and limits for those who are engaged in protesting as they find themselves with their hearts wrenched by the circumstances that didn't simply unfold last week, but for many of them have been unfolding their entire lives. Father, help them to protest safely and peacefully, and we pray that these protests could result in the government listening and entering into productive conversations. Father, we pray that the protesters would be kept safe, especially from those who are hijacking the protests, especially from those who are inciting more violence, especially from those whose purpose is to manifest the chaos of the fallen world and who would love nothing more than to see complete disorder within society. Father, we pray that they would be limited, that they would be restrained. But Father, wherever we find ourselves and those around us in what is currently happening, help us all to repent. Help us all to look to you And bring those officers, Lord, that committed that murder, bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ, that they may know your mercy and grace. And those rioters, Lord, that have hurt and killed people and police officers, bring them to repentance, that they would know your mercy and your grace. And Father, use your church to bear witness to that mercy and grace that we would reveal to the world that there is something greater than the earthly cares and desires that they have, that there is something eternal, that there is something that is pure and glorious, that there is something that is free to all who will bend the knee and rest and receive Jesus Christ as he has offered in the gospel. So lead us as your people, Lord, to embrace this for ourselves first so that we can reveal this to those who need hope around us. And we pray all of this in the the confidence, Lord, of knowing that you are the God who redeems violence. You are the God who redeems brokenness. You are the God who redeems chaos. For you, in the chaotic dark waters of creation, brought forth order and filled it with life when you created all things ex nihilo. Lord, do that here 
so that in the ashes and rubble that we find around us, there would arise a people that is beautiful because they reflect the beauty of our God. But Lord, we pray for ourselves within this process that we would constantly look to the motivation that the eternal worth of Jesus Christ presents to us so that we would continue to participate in revealing his incomparable worth to this world. Even if, Lord, we have to suffer for a time in doing so. And so, Lord, help us as your people and hear our prayer as we end by praying that prayer your Savior taught us to pray. When he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.